I think we've got to go to the deeper places when we preach. I think we have to go to the heart. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be alive? What does love look like? Like, how do I live my best life? All of those existential questions. You know, is there goodness left in the world? Is the world worth living in? And is life worth living? Like those, all those questions are what uh, young people are thinking about all the time. Well, hello and welcome to a bonus episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. For the month of October, we're going to be releasing weekly episodes as part of a series on the Connected Generation Report. It's a new research project that was commissioned by World Vision and Barna Research Group. And research like this can be a really useful tool for us as church leaders as we continue to ask questions like, how can we love and serve and pastor our people and reach our cities, especially in the midst of shifting perspectives and a changing cultural landscape? And so the Connected Generation Report was a really significant study. As part of it, they interviewed more than 16,000 adults aged 18 to 35 in 25 different countries, asking them about their goals, fears, relationships, routines, and of particular interest to us, their beliefs and view of the church. The interviews over this next month on the podcast will be focusing on the Canadian findings within the report. Over 1,000 Canadian young adults were interviewed in 2019, And what's really interesting is that the team at World Vision and Barna commissioned a follow-up project in 2021 to explore the effect of the pandemic on the daily lives and perspectives of this age demographic. The findings can be understood in four main buckets of ideas. First, age of anxiety. Second, engagement with spirituality in the church. Third, potential for impact. And fourth, implications of COVID-19. And last week, we got to kick off this whole conversation with David Kinneman from Barna and Mark Sayers from Red Church in Melbourne. And if you haven't heard that conversation yet, I recommend going back and listening to it. It's a great primer for this whole study. And before we jump into today's conversation with Daniel Strickland, I wanted to do something that I'll do in the next couple episodes as well. I want to just give you some highlights from the study, just a little bit of a You know, I just want to whet your appetite a little bit for what you can find. And so let me tell you some stats around the theme of engagement with spirituality and the church. Here's some ones that stood out to us. One stat said this, 78% of Canadians believe that religion is becoming less important in today's culture. And 40% of churchgoers and 49% of non-churchgoers say that knowing Christianity is good is more important than knowing it's true. And the proportion of millennial Christians, this is millennial Christians I'm talking about, who feel that the Christian church is harmful or detrimental has doubled between 2019 and 2021. The research is super interesting and insightful. You can read the whole study online. You can get a link to it in the show notes, and we'll tell you more about how to find that report afterwards. In just a moment, I'm going to jump into our conversation with Danielle Strickland. And I had this research in mind as I was talking with her. You can hear even some of these stats come up in the conversation. For those of you who don't know Danielle Strickland, let me tell you a bit about her. Danielle is a spiritual leader, a justice advocate, communicator, and peacemaker. She's also one of the teaching pastors at the Meeting House in Ontario, and she helps train, advocate for, and inspire people to live differently through initiatives that she started like Amplify Peace, Brave Global, the Women's Speakers Collective, I'll do a patch there, the Women's Speakers Collective, and Infinitum Life. And I'm always inspired and challenged and intrigued when I speak with Danielle. So let's jump into my conversation with Danielle Strickland right now. Well, Danielle, it is so good to have you back. I'm just so grateful for your time today. Thanks for hanging out. Hey, Jason. It's so good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I, um, 
you're like my favorite person to just say what is going on in your world. And so I just want to start by, there's so many exciting projects, so many things you're working on. What is happening in your world that you're most excited about that's giving you the most life and energy these days? Well, probably just because I spent the day with the team, uh, but this MB Homes is my new sort of project that I'm working on locally here. So tiny homes, people's backyards, creating another version of family, kinship, welcome uh, to folks that are most vulnerable in this affordable housing crisis. Hmm. So students, newcomers to Canada, kids aging out of foster care, single moms, formerly homeless people. So uh, we're just in the pilot phase, but I've also released a whole bunch of training. So it's coming out this week and in the following this month, uh, just all kinds of free training and Hmm. a free small group guide for church leaders who want to kind of dive into biblical principles um, around all these things, you know, and so it's really inspiring and hard, but great. So that's what I'm inspired about today. That's so fun. And then you were just saying before recording, like yesterday, you had like a church gathering in your home. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So we have, we call it a home base, but basically we invite people on Sundays over for dinner and, uh, and just have been welcoming people, a lot of people from other countries who are new to Hmm. Canada and newcomers, maybe mostly refugees. Um, and so they've just been coming. So we had like, I don't know, maybe nine nations here yesterday and, (laughs) um, and just a wonderful time together, just becoming a family again, you know, offering mm. hospitality. It's, you know, it's really fascinating, Jason, but the, the very last chapter of Acts, Acts 28, Peter, uh, Paul's at the end of his journey. And we know he's like apostolic, 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 right? Like crazy leader going everywhere, all the known world bringing the gospel. And the last couple verses of Acts 28, so this is the end of his life, how he chooses to spend the last few years of his life, mm. says that he got a house and he welcomed everyone who came. And um, told them about Jesus and explained the kingdom. And then the very last line, which is so beautiful, it just says this, and no one could stop him. Hmm. And these days, I've really been thinking through the power of hospitality, you know, and just like no one can stop that, the grand welcome, like the opening of our doors, Mm -hmm. like nobody can stop that. And I just am like, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. Come on. (laughs) I have a a working theory. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I think that because we literally had restrictions that were like, you can't have people in your home, that there's actually like, um, like we've been formed against opening our home in a really unhelpful way. And my theory is that actually we need to do counterformation around that. And I wonder if you've experienced that personally, you're beginning to see that. Like, I think even people that maybe two years ago, like I think opening your home has always been a challenge sometimes for the average individual, like just to strangers, like that real like core idea of hospitality, like the welcome of stranger. But I think one of the many side effects of COVID is actually we've become more and more insulated. Our home has become less and less open. And I just wonder, like even for pastors listening, what does it sound like for us to actually be able to do counterformation on that with our congregations? Yeah. And I mean, when we talk about being countercultural, you know, we're Christians standing apart. And I would say that the, the, that formation is based in fear, right? Mm. So it's been fearful, whether or not you're afraid of actually catching the virus or whether or not you're afraid of somebody telling on you. <laughs> yeah, It's all been fear-based, right? So, and, um, and so it's that idea of like countering fear with the only thing that actually can drive fear out of our lives, which is love. Mm. Right. So that what Paul Tillich would say, that force to bring things together, that's love. And so that idea of saying, like, you're welcome in this place. Now, I think it's fascinating because Canadians and I think a whole generation are kind of like your home's your own place. 
But especially when you're talking to people who are lonely or from other culture or who lack family and connection, having somebody to your home is like one of the highest, most respectful Mm -hmm. honors. So there is also something about just like um, welcoming people into your life. And Mm. I I, I honestly think hospitality is the lost gift of the church that could legitimately change the world. Hmm. I listened to a a sermon from a pastor in California. His name's Garrett Jones, really compelling guy. And he just kind of charted sort of different evangelism movements and how they responded culturally. And it was from the States, but I think applied to Canada a lot of ways. And he really just said, hey, where we're at now with the perceptions of Christianity, that this idea of hospitality and opening life and friendship isn't just like a buzzword. It's not a thing. This is literally the most effective. He made the case, the most effectively effective mission strategy for a culture that's uh, skeptical um, at best and maybe even like whatever the next extreme is to that of the church, of Christians. Um, and I know that's something that you've been sharing for a long time. I'd love just to hear you flesh that a little bit more. Like how does this actually become a strategic missional mm-hmm. tool in our current cultural climate? Yeah, I think this is fascinating because it's actually one of the easiest things and one of the most natural things. And I think we want things to be harder. Mm. (laughs) I think we legitimately want things to be hard. So we're like, that couldn't work. You know, but I'm like, (laughs) literally the crock pot has some of the best fruit in my life and I can't even cook. So like, (laughs) I'm like the crock pot is more impactful uh, in terms of like genuine relationship and even evangelism. Right. Mm. And I mean, I think this is like at the heart of like something like Alpha that's been so effective, not just because Nikki's awesome, although I think he's great and (laughs) what he presents is awesome. But I think it's the hospitality. It's the other focusness. It's the like come together. You're welcome here. Bring all of yourself with you, including your doubts and your skepticism and your fear. Mm. And then you're met with this like welcoming community. And that's what's so profound. Um, So like not a lot of uh, people know this, but uh, John Ronson is a an author. Uh, he actually wrote a classic book called The Psychopath Test. Uh, it was like a big seller novel, like way back in the day. And um, anyway, he's like an investigative journalist type of a guy. And I like his writing. So I just was reading his book. And he has this book where he goes deep into all of these different things in society. So he goes to like a credit card. He you know goes on a deep dive of the credit card industry and how they get mm. people. And, like, and he does all these things. And one of the topics in his book is alpha. I don't know if you know this. No, I don't know this. This is so interesting. I know. I didn't know this. I just literally like John Ronson. I was reading his book. So one of, and I got to the chapter and I was like, oh no, you know, because he's done this deep dive and he's a Jewish, he's Jewish guy. So not practicing Jew, but like that's his cultural background. And so anyway, he goes on this deep dive in Alpha and I just keep waiting for it. And he describes it and he actually is in a group with Nikki. Like he goes to uh, HTV. He's an English, yeah, he's an English journalist. So, but no one knows who he is. Like no one's making this connection and he goes on this group and he goes away to the Holy Spirit weekend. And like, he's talking about like all these things happening and like him with this person smoking in the parking lot and they're talking about like what's going on. And then basically I keep waiting for the penny to drop. Like he's going to just be like, they're all hypocrite, you know, like just this like expose of alpha. And at the end, he basically says, um, I really wish I could believe Hmm. like this thing is so beautiful. So welcoming. Nikki was like, so like genuinely filled with a desire to welcome people that he's like, I really wish I could believe. And I just mm. was like, wow, that's in his expose book, you know, uh, wow. amazing. Anyway. So I think that welcoming, so even if people aren't one, you know what I mean? Like even if people don't agree with you, 
this impact you can make yeah. on people's desire and hunger to know, you know, and I mean, literally this guy is like, you know, like taking down all of these industries and it comes to Elba and he's just like, his takeaway is I wish I could believe. <laughs> Incredible. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah. That's actually an interesting, this is part of the Connected Gen research, is that non-churchgoers are more interested in knowing that Christianity is good than knowing it's true. And so that's 49% of non-churchgoers uh, would say, hey, it's important to me to know that Christianity is good. And only 24% are asking the question, is it true? Now, obviously, this data reflects their own experience of those questions of good and true. But for a long time, the evangelism proposition was apologetics. I think there's still an important place for that. Obviously, post-enlightenment, it was like, how do we argue for all this? And are you seeing that and experiencing that? Yeah, I mean, I think we've shifted massively, like even I think in my generation, I'm, I'm older than you, but I think in my generation, we shifted to uh, that postmodern sort of, we don't really, that rational idea, like there's just so many things we don't understand, so many things that have been proven to be more complicated and more mysterious than we could ever even grasp. You know what I mean? Like so many things we thought we understood or thought we believed in that uh, showed us that we didn't and uh, mm. we can't believe in those things that I think we we uh, we have way less of an emphasis on this rational truth idea. I think it is true. I think people are looking for goodness and beauty. And I think people are really, I, the people that I talk to, the young people that I talk to are so tired of mm. being disappointed. Um, like there's a real disappointment fatigue. Uh, or mm-hmm. what I would say, you know, cynicism winning, you know, that all humans are just terrible. You know what I mean? And like all yeah. the news is bad and like all the the outcomes are, um, you know, are pointless to try because we can't change anything. I mean, we're living in such existential angst right now, even with the end of the planet, right? Mm-hmm. The existential mm-hmm. threat of the end of the planet, that the levels of anxiety and fear and cynicism are at all an all time high for this generation. Mm-hmm. So it's no wonder they're looking for goodness. Mm-hmm. Right. It's no wonder they're looking for goodness and beauty and something positive, like something um, that's, yeah, that's good. Hmm. I wonder, like, what does that look like in the pulpit? Like, you're you're one of my favorite communicators, and you take teaching the Bible so seriously. What does it look like for us to show in the pulpit not just that Christianity is true, but it's good and beautiful? Yeah, I mean, I think stories king. Stories king, right? And if you pay attention to the life of Jesus, Jesus does a lot of storytelling. It's his primary Mm. way. And you pay attention to the Bible. The Bible is a big story (laughs) with all these characters and different ways of telling story and like all these different. So I think the story is the language of heaven. I think there's Mm. something about a really good story that evokes. And again, a story, I mean, I don't know if you've ever had this, but like I've sat down with theologians who are like, you know, but is this, is it true? Is this parable true? And you're just sort of like, it's like, is this joke true? You know what I mean? You're like, a joke isn't true. It's funny. And uh, (laughs) I think that's kind of part of that. Like the story is true, but not in the way that you think, like Mm. not in the rational thought, but in something deeper. I think we've got to go to the deeper places when we preach. It's not enough to just the one, two, threes of like, you know, like getting by or like money management or all those sort of practical things. I think we have to go to the heart. What does it mean Mm. to be human? What does it mean to be alive? What does love look like? Like, how do I live my best life? Like Mm. all of those existential questions, you know, is there goodness left in the world? Is the world worth living in? And is life worth living? Like those, all those questions are what uh, young people are thinking about all the time. Mm. Some of my favorite conversations with 
mutual friend of ours, Daryl Johnson, he preached um, as the pastor in Manila during the people power revolution. And mm. um, asking him about preached in that moment, he said like the kingdom of God, like preaching the kingdom of God never felt more real than when I was preaching mm. to a people who were going through that cultural crisis and then also seeing like the tide shift. And I wanna just to ask you about preaching during COVID and just mm. like what's been going on internally for you as you think about getting in front of people in this, in this really profound moment and then inviting them into the kingdom. Yeah, how, is, yeah, how has your preaching been impacted as you preach the kingdom in such a profound, visceral moment of shared experience across the board for people? Well, I think one of the things that's impacted me, and I think the thing that I've seen being impacting for the whole church, you know, when it, you see this popping up everywhere, is this return to the person and the way of Jesus. Hmm. Because uh, I'm not sure there's a better place to land. Like, there's nothing surer than that. Like, I think in all the um, insecureness of like what we can, can't control and what we can't, like what we used to uh, sort of think was good preaching topics, I think the one place that we land is on Jesus. And this is what we know for sure. Like, I know for sure, for sure, for sure that Jesus is the thing I land on. Jesus is mm-hmm. the one that I'm following. And then I think the way of Jesus, you know, being this countercultural. Um, and in, you know, in a, in, to an oppressed people at a very oppressive time, Jesus speaks. And I think returning to that, and I, I don't know about you, but like the Beatitudes are everywhere. Um, mm. It's just like a return to the core teachings of Jesus, which I think is one of the most refreshing, most beautiful things that could happen right now. And of course, I think that the person of Jesus is the answer um, to every generation, but specifically to this one, because even mm. as we deconstruct religious you know, and the costs of religion and what it means, you know, even this question is, is it good? I I mean, nobody thinks religion is good. I mean, the Mm -hmm. history of religion in the world is not good. We can all agree on that from crusades to residential schools, right? Mm -hmm. But is Jesus good? Yes. And is the way of Jesus good? Yes. And so even defining the difference between, you know, sort of religious institutional practices and the way and person of Jesus I think even for our own lives is essential, but I think Mm. definitely for this generation is essential. So I've just been camping out on Jesus. I can't really get out of Jesus. Um, I can't get away from him, the teachings of Jesus. So like even, you know, like I partnered with World Vision and did this whole video curriculum series on the way of Jesus through the Beatitudes. Mm. And I realized in my life, and this is, I think, where a lot of my stories come from, is I realized that I learned more about the way and the person of Jesus through people who were different than me, Mm. like mostly in the downtown east side. Like I learned more about the person of Jesus from my friend Annie, who is drug addicted and mentally ill, than I had like in my theological training. And I remember walking in to visit her in a, a psych ward. And in, in Vancouver, which you, if you've ever been to a psych ward in Vancouver, if you haven't, you should, it should be on your bucket list, but it's like, like kind of a version of hell. And she took me by the hand and showed me the craft room. She's like, I got to show you what I drew. And we walked into this craft room and she had taken this massive sheet of table paper Hmm. and she had like covered the entire bulletin board. Like she covered over everybody else's art. And she had written in these big black letters, what will you do with the King of Israel? Hmm. And then underneath, she had written in these tiny red letters, kiss the sun. Hmm. 
And, you know, of course it's from Psalm two, if you're paying attention, Psalm two, it's like, why do the nations plot in vain against God? Like, don't they know the Lord sits in heaven and he laughs? Like, what are you going to do with the King of Israel? You know, the bigness and the greatness of this, you know, and then she had just answered the question. You're it's kiss the sun, man. It's wow. intimacy, it's relationship, it's connection to Jesus. That's how we're going to deal with this King of Israel. And I mean, I'll never forget that, but I mean, I look, that's like a theological, that's a sermon right there in a yeah. psych ward with my, <laughs> And, um, and I just think, you know, the ways of Jesus, the way people that were able to share out of their poverty instead of out of their riches, the way that they welcomed and connected, the way that they taught mm. me the ways of Jesus. So, uh, so I was really interested in the fact that I, I learned the most about Jesus from the margins. But then when it comes to like the way we do church, we're always asking the celebrities, right? We're always asking right. elevated platform people, like, tell us about the way of Jesus as, as if they know. <laughs> about, you know, Jesus is like, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after justice. Mm. Like those are the ones who are touching the kingdom of God who are participating with me. And so um, I tried, I invited a bunch of friends of mine who have big platforms and are often asked all the questions to be part of this right side up series, I call it, which is like upside down kingdom, but a right side up world with Jesus at the center. Mm. And so it features like Christine Kane is asking a trafficking survivor, like, what, how do you know, like, tell me about poverty of spirit. Like, and when you get there, how did you find the kingdom? You know, and my friend Tannis, who spent like, I don't know, 30 years on the streets, heroin addict, mm. prostituted person, like all the things, like lived through so much um, she, it tells Christine how it feels mm. like to be poor in spirit and then how she found God at the end of her rope. Wow. And, uh, Craig Rochelle is asking, and this one's a beautiful one cause he's, you know, perfect. Craig's perfect, ready. It's perfect body, perfect camera, totally. perfect angle, perfect sound. <laughs> yeah. And he's asking about, uh, meekness or humility. And he asked Jayakmar Kumar and Jayakmar Kumar wrote a book called, uh, the God of the empty handed. And he's, mm. uh, he's worked in India among the poorest of the poor for his whole life. And so he's asking Jayakumar Kumar, tell me about meekness. Tell me about humility. And uh, Jayakumar Kumar is answering. He's holding a phone up in a hut in India, answering the question to Craig in his studio about what it means to be a leader who fosters a mm. life of humility. I mean, it's so profound. And uh, that series reminded me about this right side up. The way that we're going to encounter Jesus is in the real lives and in the way of Christ, the way of the margins. Um, and I think that's going to be an answer, an answer that's going to keep resounding in its impact. Mm. One really creative project that um, World Vision's been doing, like they're kind of shifting the model for child sponsorship in uh, not just like a creative way, but in like a meaningful way. It's called Chosen. And can you just tell us a little bit about it and why it's more than just like a change in the approach, but it's actually like a change in ethos at its core? Yeah, I mean, I think this relates a lot to next generation because one of the key words I think that we need to figure out is uh, empowerment. It's actually the solution to poverty. Poverty is disempowerment. It's not actually about economics. It's about people who don't lack choice, right? Hmm. And there's no one in the world that lacks choice more than disempowered kids, and particularly in struggling and developing world. Um, so what World Vision has done is just flip the script. Like hmm. we are going to use empowerment and we're going to just tell a generation of kids that have been told their whole life they don't have enough and they don't have any choices. And we're going to go right from the beginning of this relationship. We're going to say, you choose, hmm. you choose. 
And so even just that itself, just to say this posture is about you taking some responsibility and you being empowered to make your own choices. And the choices, of course, that they're making are ones of partnership, right? It's them partnering. So instead of you picking a child off of a table, which has always been awkward anyway, I think, um, there's a you submit your picture uh, to say, I'm open to partnership. Mm. I'm willing to be an empowering partner in, in this. And your picture gets put up in a hall in a a church somewhere in like Africa or Zambia or India or Bangladesh or wherever it is. And uh, some kids get to come to that place and they're told you choose, you choose Mm -hmm. someone that you think is a good partner for you. And then that begins what we imagine, what I hope and dream about is an empowering partnership where we work together to end poverty for a generation. So it's pretty exciting. It's also pretty powerful to be chosen. Hmm. which I think is one of the great lessons of this generation. People who have been financially wealthy, but so socially poor hmm. uh, where we get to be chosen. And uh, I think that matters. I love that. And I think you and I have been part of some conversations and I think this is compelling because it's like all ages can be involved, but I'm particularly interested in what does it look like for children to have this relationship with children around the world, like teenagers in Canada. Like I think I was telling you about my son collecting bottles and like he's almost at the place where he could probably afford to be part of a chosen project. I just think about like he's eight now and there's 13, 14, 15 year olds across Canada who've got the disposable income available to be part of this and they could put their yeah. face up and then be chosen by someone and have a corresponding relationship. Like I I don't, yeah. I just think there's such an opportunity here for us to say like all the stuff we've been talking about Um where, where the next generation is asking for something with like that's more tangible. Say, okay, let's just do this right now. Let's start mm-hmm. doing this stuff right now. Right. Let's put yourself that's out right. there. Yeah. And then I think, you know, they've just started this. So we don't know what the ramifications are, but I think they're rich. Like, and I think mm. they're more than maybe we even can imagine what they are. When we start a relationship that's empowerment at its core, what that partnership might actually include later on. I mean, I'm excited to see uh, what the power of this chosen thing is in the long term. One of the pieces of data from the Connected Gen report that stood out to me, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it, Danielle, was about people's view of the church and how it shifted uh, between 2019 and 2021. We saw the perception that the church is detrimental to society, like double. And so this is a unique climate to be pastoring in. And I just wanted to get some thoughts from you, like how do we posture ourselves and how do we engage in a culture that's not just skeptical of the church, but I guess in some instances like threatened by it or uh, resentful or fearful of it. Our tendency, our inclination is the triumphant church, you know, and our tendency is the physical church, is the building, is the institution, um, And of course, you're following a rabbi who was critical of his religious institution Mm. at the time. Uh, You need to pay attention to that as a religious leader. There's just no way around that. I remember years ago uh, reading the Bible as a Pharisee, like just coming to the conclusion that I have more in common with the Pharisees in Scripture than anybody else. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, read it again. And this time Mm. I want you to read it as a Pharisee. And I read the scriptures as though I was a Pharisee listening. Because one of the tendencies I realized is that when you're in the church, it's really weird. But when you read the words of Jesus to the Pharisees, you're always like, oh, that a boy, Jesus, like stick it to the Pharisees. Get them, get them. Yeah, as though they're not us, you know, as though Mm. we're 
you know, we're the poor, right? And it's ridiculous. So I read it again as the religious, you know, as the Pharisees. And I realized that Jesus, you know, he met with them at night. He met with them in secret. He had dinner at their houses. He went to their synagogues. He reasoned with them everywhere he could. But Jesus was not mad at the Pharisees. He was, he loved the Pharisees and he was inviting them to the kingdom. And I think as a church leader, I really had to take that seriously. Like I had to listen to Jesus and follow the way of Jesus as a religious leader. And oftentimes that means repenting and mm-hmm. it means letting go of the things that would serve me at the expense of others. And it means really correcting my course as is needed. And it really means a posture shift. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in Canada right now, we're talking about, what is it, 28 churches that were burned down across Canada, 42 that were vandalized after the they found the remains of indigenous children, thousands of indigenous children, probably more to come all across Mm -hmm. Canada that were Mm -hmm. buried through the residential school system. And I mean, you know, there's been lots of responses to that. Churches get afraid, Christians get afraid. And when we hear stats, like, you know, the general public is like, actually, Christianity has been detrimental to, you know, we get defensive. We're like, Mm -hmm. what are you talking about? We offer all this value. But I think that's the wrong posture. I think we need to grieve together with the public. To say the way that that church was done, the way that institutional church has cost, you know, which is in direct opposition to the way of Christ, by the way. The way residential schools were run is in direct opposition to the gospel and what it means for people. I think we need to acknowledge it. I think we need to Mm. switch our posture. And I think then those beatitudes become our way of participating with Jesus. We're going to be poor in spirit. We're going to be brokenhearted right? We're going to mourn. We've got to find meekness. We have to hunger and thirst after justice and righteousness. We're going to have to hunger and thirst after that stuff, right? Like we're going to have to find mercy and be merciful. We're going to have to be persecuted. And this is a way of us participating in the life of Christ. But we're so used to sort of the triumphant church idea, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Herculean, like the bigger, the better, the glorious, we're on this trajectory upwards. And the tra- trajectory of Christ is downwards downwards. Mm. It's always going down. So I think we have to change our expectation. We have to think about what this means, how we impact people, how we make disciples, um, and how we use goodness, how we actually goodness is a part of like the ethos of who we are as a people. Danielle, one of the things I'm always intrigued about, your life is like, you know, you described individuals in your home. And you're doing it on the ground. It's and you, and I don't want to make a false dichotomy, but for the sake of this question, you're doing that sort of like the small, decentralized, deconstructed, not layers of complication. You're just doing that frontline stuff, and yet you're like speaking at the biggest conferences in the biggest church buildings. And um, you know, how do you reconcile like? And I, I, I know this is a false dichotomy, big church, small church. I'm not, I'm not trying to get that, but like you live in what feels like two different worlds and you've got this redemptive presence in both of them. And I feel like you're just this example of someone who's like appropriately critiquing the part of Christendom that doesn't look much like Jesus and yet like redeeming as much of it as possible. And I'm just like, I just really want to get into like how you navigate that, how you step up on these stage. And I just, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but sometimes you must be wondering, like, I don't even know if this building is good for the world. And yet you find redemptive path through it. Am I making any sense at all? Yeah. And you know, it's really interesting, but I spent years and years, of course, like living in the downtown east side and doing decentralized church. So I literally in those days would have suggested that big churches were wrong, you know, that big churches were wrong. And so And then I felt like the Lord graciously invited me into what I call now my repentance tour. (laughs) And it was like all these sort of mega churches. And I kept meeting and seeing 
such goodness. You know, I mean, mm. people that were sold out for Jesus and doing such good things in the world and really, you know, using their power to empower other people and serving the poor and stopping human trafficking. And like, and I just was like, oh, shoot, like, I really want to judge them. And uh, it turns out they're beautiful after all. So I really think it's less about, and this is the problem, is we make it about like the right way or the wrong way. Uh, and it needs to be about the fruit. You know, it needs mm. to be about the kingdom values. It needs to be about not just what we're doing, but the way we're doing it. Um, mm. And I think, you know, this season that we're in of exposing, you know, I mean, God is yeah. disciplining us in the way that he loves us in showing us the emptiness of the way that we've done things, including leadership and structures and systems that oppress people, both within the church and without the church. And so there's this real season that we have with the whole generation to get really humble and honest and I think our effectiveness is going to come out of that posture shift. It's not going to come mm. out of a better defense or greater apologetics. It's going to come out of a demonstrated repentance that leads to, you know, a different way of living and being in the world. Mm. And that's going to bear such beautiful fruit, you know, mm. but it's not going to be that glorious institutional kind. It's going to be genuine kingdom fruit that comes when people see what it looks like to be good, even in the middle of bad news. Mm. What does it sound like for pastors to lead their church in acts of repentance for the sins of the Canadian church? Um, even last night, as I was speaking to a young adult congregation about in Vancouver, about the vision of the church as a counterculture for the common good, I was just pausing. And I said, I'm just deeply aware that for a lot of people here, this just seems so far from your perception. And I found myself... And just being really honest, like still stumped for the words. I feel like I hope my heart came across, but just trying to struggle. What does it sound like to not just write one post and move on, but to really live with a repentant posture and to lead a church? I don't know if you have any like coaching for me. Like I think sometimes I just use this podcast as my own sort of coaching ground as a <laughs> pastor, but I just, I really want to do this, Danielle. I really want yeah. to not move on. And I want to model for, I want to do it myself and model for our, our congregation here in Vancouver. Like, we want to model that repentant, humble, we're not doing PR. Um, and I just would love to know what kind of language you think we can use and posture. What does that look like? Take me one more step deeper on what does that posture look like week in, week out? So like I was at a camp, a Christian camp, and it was right when that all that stuff was happening and all these things were announced, these bodies were found. And it was like going to be Canada Day in a couple of days. And I was just like, I think we just need to have like a, a time where we lament like mm. we're sort, like we have to just come and like share our heart. And so I just said, like, we're going to meet at the campfire and we're just going to like lament. We're just going to acknowledge our complicity and our silence mm. and our, you know, even our ignorance is complicit mm. and say like, we're sorry. And we just want to have this campfire. And so that's what we did. And people just took turns sharing about their own ignorance. And I mean, it was pretty vulnerable, actually. People were, because I, I just don't think people know how to lament like how to mm -hmm. grieve publicly our culture has been like everything's fine thanks for asking i'm fine how are you so yeah. i think there is a sense in which we just got to come together and be honest and broken together and after the campfire was all over people were you know moving around this woman came up to me and like was weeping and just trying to keep it together and she just said to me thank you so much and i said well like i literally didn't do anything i just like shared my own complicity and we all cried together you know and she said uh yeah but i'm i'm first nations Mm. And I have never heard anybody in any church I've ever been talk about this like this. 
like mm. actually grieve or lament or give people opportunity to confess and have place set aside where we were like acknowledging uh, what, what, how we were part of it and how we needed God to help us. And she said, this has like literally been transforming for me. Now you would never know she was first nations. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't know there was no indication. Mm -hmm. Um, but I thought, you know, this is just a simple Sunday night at a camp. Like this isn't, mm. but I just, I wonder, I think we're missing. Sometimes the church is missing when you think about even just the Psalms, you know, some of the most sacred part of the Bible, like there's a good, I don't know, half of them that are about lament just telling the truth. I remember listening to a little conversation with Bono and Eugene Peterson hmm. and, uh, and Bono saying, I feel so sorry for worship leaders, you know, and, and Peterson going, what? And Bono's like, well, they just can't tell the truth. Can they? They just can't tell the truth. It always hmm. has to resolve. Like it always has to be good news. It always has to be like, and uh, I, I know somebody did a, a percentage study on worship songs. It's like 98% of them are positive. You know, mm. <laughs> so we just don't even know how to grieve. You know, we haven't given expression to it or given permission to it. So I, I think we need to figure out how to mourn and grieve and teach a generation that struggles with all that grief and fear and anxieties inside of them. And they're trying to get it out. And I think the church could play a big part in helping them give language mm. and insight and a permission to grieve and to lament with God about the condition of the world. Mm. One of the parts of the Connected Generation report shows that young people, this 18 to 35-year-old demographic, are concerned about very specific issues. And they want to see the church respond to them, issues and themes like climate change, racism, gender equality, corruption, some of the stuff we've already been talking about. And when I hear that, if, if I'm honest, Danielle, like, it can feel a little overwhelming. Like, I'm not an expert on these areas. And so how do I speak to all of these things? And I know that these themes right now especially can feel really controversial. There's a lot of opinions, and so that's intimidating. And I guess there's another level to it. There's this idea that for me, and I think a lot of pastors listening, even though there's a desire to respond to these cultural issues, the primary thing we get up to do is to teach the scriptures and to point people to Jesus. And knowing that these things are very, very connected, it can still feel difficult to find ourselves prioritizing the message of Jesus, I guess, and not just responding to what's happening in culture. And you're someone who's been able to integrate this a ton. And so how do we best respond to these issues in a way that keeps the gospel central? I remember I, like years ago, Jason, like way back, like 20 years ago, I was speaking at an event, a youth event in Detroit, which of course Detroit is the most segregated city in America. And um, I spoke at this Christian youth event and it was segregated, not officially, but mm. all the black kids were on one side and all the white kids were on the other. And here's uh. the thing that happened. Every single person in the, uh, like, uh, in the meeting was all white, like that was doing the programming. There wasn't even a black person in the worship team. I just, I couldn't believe it. I was just like, this is insane. So I went to the leader. I'm from like Northern Canada. I was like living in Williams Lake, British Columbia at the time. So like, I'm from like nowhere. I'm a white Canadian woman in Detroit. What am I doing? And I said to the organizer, I just took, took him aside. I just said like, why are all the people white? Like, why am mm. I speaking? Like you couldn't find a black person. Like, I don't understand. And why are the kids not like, I'm just like, what's happening here? And I'm, I will never forget this. He looked at me and he said to me, mind your own business. Mm. Like, do not, I brought you here to preach the gospel. Do not talk about this. 
And my husband was with me and he was just like, oh no. <laughs> but I just was like, I tried. Jason, I tried. I recognized I'm a white woman from Canada. What do I know about it? This is too deep. For, like, you know what I mean? This is none of my business. But then I tried to preach the gospel without it being about reconcilia- reconciliation and without it being about justice and without mm. it being about like integration. Like, and I couldn't, I couldn't figure out like, what gospel am I going to preach here? I don't understand. Like, where's the good news in this environment? Like, so I just, I just was like, here's the good news. You want the, some good news? Here's the good news. Like, we don't have to live like this anymore. Like, mm-hmm. we don't have to live separate like this. We don't have to be disconnected from this. We don't have to live like with this kind of injustice anymore. Like, literally, leaders are walking out. I've never been invited back to Detroit, actually. <laughs> um, but I'm, and, but here's what I knew in my heart. Like, if I was going to do this, it was going to cost me. Yeah. Like, I'm never coming back to this conference again. Like, this is going to be like, you know. Yeah. This is going to be hard and it's going to be difficult. And who am I? You know, all those things like, who am yeah. I? And then I just had to reposture myself. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm an ambassador of good news. I'm a minister of reconciliation. That's who I am. Mm. And this has always been a costly message. It was a costly message for Jesus. It was a costly message for all the apostles. And it's like, we want this good news without any of the cost right? This is Bonhoeffer, right? He's like, you want some sort of cheap grace where you can stand up in your pulpit with like a German Nazi flag and just say like, we're doing our best to navigate the season and we want to please everybody. And Bonhoeffer's like, you can't have that. You either are with the crucified Christ or you're not. You're either a minister of reconciliation or you're not, but you cannot have it both ways. So I just, I feel like, I feel like I'm ranting now, but what I need to say is the fear is real and the cost is real. That's why you're afraid of it. The cost is real. And what it might mean is that you lose people in your church and it might mean that people walk away and it might mean that it's too hard and it might mean that you lose your platform and it might mean that you're never invited back. But I just, in that moment, 22 years ago or whatever, I just was like, it's worth it to me. I'd rather Mm. not come back here if I'm going to talk about some gospel that's not rooted in real life and Mm. doesn't have reconciliation at the center and doesn't have justice as a way of Jesus. So I remember the young people were for it, though. I mean, all the old people were walking out because this is like, but all the young people were like, I mean, awake, like they've never been before. And I had two young people come up, one white, one black, and did like sort of an identificational repentance, um, which was hilarious, by the way. It was like, uh, I don't want to reenact it, but it was very funny. And uh, for such a serious thing, it was really funny. <laughs> and, um, and then the appeal was instead of crying about it, we decided to exchange phone numbers and, you know, there's 50 mile, you know, the, the radius in Detroit because of Eminem, we all know this, uh, that they had to cross the barrier. They had to go for each other's houses for dinner, you know, because that mm. was going to be reconciliation. That was going to be the way that we would cross this line it was not in a meeting, but in our real lives. And so a couple months later, I remember I was in Chicago preaching at a different event. And this girl came running down the aisle. She's like, Danielle, you've got to see this. And she had her phone and she showed me the pictures of her at the the girl's house that she, she met that day. And uh, she had never been, you know, to a white person's house for dinner before. And, and then vice versa, she showed me pictures of that girl at her house having some fried chicken. And Mm. uh, she just said she was beaming, you know, and she's just like, it's, it's changed some things. And I just thought to myself, okay, even if it was just that relationship, it was worth it. But I think that's that decision that you make. And I mean, in all honesty, I, I was okay with never speaking again, if that's what it takes. Like, I, I think we just, we're just not willing sometimes to pay the cost of this gospel that is deep like that. Danielle, what would you say to pastors who are concerned that some of the cultural conversations around justice, and even some of the conversations in the church around justice, are leading people to pursue these causes, which is good, 
but doing it without Jesus or the gospel as like the source of power or the primary ethic at the core. There's a sense that social justice and the gospel can be pitched as this either or dichotomy. And like, that's not helpful. But I guess what I'm asking is, what might you say to those of us who are legitimately concerned about what the implications are for a justice movement that's not rooted in the person and the way and power to transform lives that only is found in Jesus? You know, one of the problems is that the way that we presented the gospel for a long time has been this like super spiritual reality void of the way that we live, right? So the gospel Mm -hmm. has not been a journey of discipleship. It's just been this belief system that we believe and then we're like saved. (laughs) And there hasn't been this invitation to a different way of life or an invitation to the discipleship uh, part of Jesus, this invitation to take up your cross and follow him. So I think part of the dichotomy that we're feeling, like are we losing the essence of the gospel, is that I think that the essence of the gospel has been a little bit twisted So that what we think is the essence of the gospel, which is the spiritual um, conversion, is not the whole gospel. Um, That the spiritual reality is what is the spark that then takes root and changes the way that we live our lives. That that's the whole, the whole gospel, you know, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, that your whole spirit, soul, and body would be made blameless, right? That would be, would come into wholeness. So I think that this idea of believing something that's devoid or separated from the way that we're living is Mm. where the dichotomy is. It's actually not the gospel that we're worried about. It's this like false gospel that we've been Mm. preaching for a lot of years, that what you believe somehow can be separated from how you live. And I think that that's actually okay to let that go. I think that this gospel, which is the message that there's power, there's a power for you to live differently in this world. That Mm. there's a reconciliation that happens where you normally cannot go against the culture. Like you're in this dominant flow. Like there's nothing that you can do to get out of this like stuck system that you're in, this human system that you're in, except God. Mm. And God has the power to not only change your inner, you know, inner self, but actually to work that inner self into the way that you live in your real life, which means that your relationships will change. It means the way that you spend your money will change. It means that like your dream for your future will change. So like if the church's dream for people's future is the same as the world's dream for people's future, then that's not the gospel. Hmm. So like, and and this is one of the great tragedies, I think, of a generation where we've said like, Jesus wants to bless you and like make you rich and give you a peace-filled life. (laughs) Even if that wealth comes at the back and the expense of the poor, like even if that means that you've like fortified in your own house that you lock at night and like you keep, even though people are sleeping on the streets, don't worry about it. Just keep stacking your 401k so that we can actually get some more money to do more programs in our church. Like none of that is the gospel. That's, that's just not it. I, I mean, I wish it was, cause isn't that awesome? It's like, we can have our cake. We can have like, like this comfortable, awesome upward mobility life and we can have Jesus and like the mm. essence of what it means to be countercultural as though countercultural is just like what, I don't know, uh, like having a potluck once a month or something like in our nice, I don't, I just think that the countercultural message of the gospel is that we have a different center with a different mm. set of values with a life that is countercultural to the life in which we're the other people's lives in which we're. So the kingdom dream, which is to spend ourselves on behalf of the hungry, right? Mm. Or the kingdom dream, which is to make room for those who are uh, don't have it, which is, you know, God saying, I'm putting the lonely into family. Like mm. the kingdom dream. I mean, if we were living as disciples of Jesus, Jason, 
there wouldn't be a crisis of foster care. And it's not to judge anybody. It's just to say that the values of the kingdom of God, like I remember being in um, Africa, in, uh, in Zambia, and the church there is exploding. You know, it's just like, and they're poor, they're the, one of the poorest nations on earth and the church is exploding. They don't have buildings to put people in. They just gather in fields and they like everybody, every family brings a brick every Sunday as they're offering to try to build a building. Hmm. And I said to the leaders there, like we went, I took a bunch of leaders from Australia to learn what they were doing to grow the church there, you know, and they just kept introducing us. They're like, these amazing Australians, the Australians have come to teach us poor Zambians, you know, and I was like, no, no, that's not what's happening here. Like we need, like we're poor Australians. All we have is money. And we need you to teach us like the kingdom stuff, right? And they kept introducing. Mm -hmm. So finally, I just said to the crowd, okay, thank you. I'm honored you introduced me that way. But in Australia, people die. You know, the number one cause of death in Australia, it's loneliness. People die by themselves. They mm -hmm. die of disconnection and loneliness. I'm like people put their old, uh, old people, their parents into homes and they die by themselves. The whole crowd's like, <gasps> I said, like, there's like 57,000 foster care kids in Australia and no one will take them into our home, into their homes. <gasps> the Zambians are shocked. And I'm like, there are like state-of-the-art churches with like massive video and nobody will go to church. And, and the Zambians are shocked because every Zambian family takes in orphans. Like when you ask somebody in Zambia, like how many kids are in your family? They're going to say there are four kids and three others. That's, what they, that's mm. how they put it. I have three kids and five others. I have three kids, you know, because everybody just absorbed. They went through the, one of the greatest AIDS orphans crisis in the mm. world and mm -hmm. everybody just absorbed the children into their families. It was just a natural communal response. And the church is on fire. You know, mm. the early churches, one of the greatest strategies was that they used to do those rounds on the city walls and all the babies that the Romans would put out to face the elements when they didn't want to accept them into their uh, households. So back, to, I don't know if you've heard this, but when the Romans would have children, the guy would have to come home and declare them a child for them to live. And if the guy didn't want the child, they would just put the child up on the city walls and just be like, well, so be it. And the Christians used to do rounds and take in mm. all those babies. And one of the historians I've read, one of the growths of the early church was that they literally raised all these kids. Mm. Um, and it was like part of the growth of the church, right? Like, um, I mean, even if all we did was target the foster care community and said like, we're gonna let every kid who has been discarded, uh, according to the prophecy in Isaiah, we're gonna let every kid know that they're welcome and that mm. they belong to a family of God. We would, uh, what is it? There's like over a hundred thousand kids in the Canadian foster care system. So I, I think the way of Jesus, the way of justice, the way of the oppressed, the way of the margins. I mean, I know I, it sounds like I'm I'm being too hard on everybody. And I don't mean to. I know everyone's been through COVID and we've been through a lot. And I want to say like the way of Jesus is actually this burden that he gives us is uh, a beautiful one. Hmm. But um, the way has been marked out. And I think a, a whole generation is just like time's up on the church, preaching one thing and living another. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I remember speaking at a church one time for a missions conference and uh and they were, they were sad to say they were canning their mission board because they didn't have the resources or the people interested in, in the missions. <laughs> and I asked them how much their sound system was and how much their worship budget was and how much their worship director got, you know, because all of the mission board was volunteer. And, um, you know, it's, it doesn't take very long to get mm -hmm. to people's priorities and the church's priorities. So mm -hmm. if we were to spend ourselves, I think, on others and particularly oppressed and marginalized and those poorest of the poor, I think our witness and the, the power of the gospel would be made manifest. Um, and I don't think we'd have to defend ourselves much longer. Hmm. You and I were part of uh, 
a project a few weeks ago called the Life Shared Summit. And there was some research that was shared on the state of evangelism in Canada. And um, I think that whole summit's available to listen to because I just, there's a lot of compelling ideas shared and loved what you shared, Danielle. And one of the stats that was striking is that 65% of pastors in Canada don't see evangelism as a priority. And I'm just wondering what your response is to that number. Um, well, first of all, it's a tragic number um, because we really do have good news. <laughs> like it really is good. And it's better than we thought. You know, I, and this is the thing I've discovered about Jesus and the way that he invites me to live. Like the news is better. It gets better and better every time. So I think it's a tragic number. I do think it is indicative of a deep, deep problem within the church. And it's mm. that we're church-centered. We're church-centered. And I think particularly in these times when everyone's like worried about resources and their church is reopening and like they're getting really defensive in a culture that seems hostile to the, to the church, um, the temptation is to like hunker down and like just focus on ourselves. And uh, that is a temptation straight from the devil. Hmm. straight from the devil, because the church's focus should never be itself, right? The church's focus should always be, for God so loved the world, the church's focus should always be Jesus, but through the lens of Jesus, we see the world and Hmm. we lay down our lives for the world. Those Hmm. who don't belong, that's why we exist. We exist for those who don't belong uh, yet. One of the things that uh, the Connected Generation research was showing was that amongst millennials in particular, and I think this would be the same with Gen Z, is there's a real like sense that there's a leadership crisis in the generations before them. Like they're articulating that they feel like there's just not enough good leaders, something like 81% saying there's just not, we have a leadership crisis. But then on the other side of that is like, as they look at themselves, they don't see themselves as leader. Like a, like a, a third of them would say like, in no sphere of my life, do I feel like I'm a leader? And I, I think that as we look at that data, there's a real opportunity here to call um, Millennials and Gen Z, like I was going to say the next generation, but it's like, no, it's not the next generation. It is just this now generation into a leadership that's almost like latent and into a response. I think this is a really profound moment for the church to sort of say, okay, you know, we have this opportunity for people who are maybe increasingly skeptical, um, resistant, but acknowledging it. What does it look like for us to not just be a people that say, hey, we see that you see the problem, but we're actually inviting you to be part of the solution. How do we invite um, our peers and our next generation in the church into the solutions to the problems they see as leaders? Yeah, I think you've articulated that really beautifully, Jason, because one of the problems that exists is that we keep trying to plug in next generation leaders into the holes of this generation's institutional versions of church. And that's not what's working. Right. That's Mm. what like I know so many young people who are just not going to do church like that and they don't want to plug in those holes. So like I'll have church leaders who say, like, we really need you to like fill this spot in the church leadership board. And the next generation is like, no, thanks. But if they would take the time to talk about what's on their heart to do, what their gifts are, what their dreams are, what their desire is, and then help them reach those goals. Right. So it's more about empowerment than it is about like plugging the spots of your leadership portfolios at your church. And I think that's going to help the church figure out some new wineskins because definitely the way we've been doing things is not actually working anyway. So this is good news. It might be time to shut some of the traditional things that you've done as a church and actually start opening to what are the other ways that we could do things and the different ways and the new ways that we haven't even thought of, Hmm. but we're going to actually resource and empower some people to do it. 
Uh, and not just on their own, do it with them, but with us as in a serving posture rather than a dictating posture. Hmm. I love chatting with you about this stuff. You're just, um, the, you're always pushing me and challenging me and I sense the love of God in it. You're saying, I'm not trying to be hard on people. I don't feel that at all. I just, I, uh, I hear the longing in your heart to find us aligned with the way of Jesus and my heart longs for that. And so thanks for being you, uh, for being like so faithful, for seeing it, calling it out, being brave. Um, and for so many creative initiatives that you're doing, like there's so many things we could have chatted about, whether it's Brave or Women Speakers Collective. And I just think on so many fronts, and you are an example to me of someone who's like, I'm going to give things a try. I think I'm going to throw things at the wall and see what sticks. And it's just so exciting to see. And I'm so grateful for you. And I want to just to thank you for your time chatting today. Thanks, Jason. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. I love your um, hunger for truth and your authenticity um, and genuine learning posture. It's really beautiful. Well, I'm so grateful to Danielle for her time and willingness to sit down and have this conversation today. And I hope that each person who's listening right now gets a chance to dig into the whole study. If you'd like to access and download the full Connected Generation Report, you can go to the World Visions Church's website or just click the link in the episode description in our show notes and you can get a full summary of the report and some ideas around how churches can respond. Now, next week, I get to sit down with my friend Shayla Visser. She's the National Director of Alpha Canada. And I don't say this flippantly at all. She's one of the most formative leaders in my life. Shayla is seen firsthand in her life and through the work of Alpha, the way that God is using churches and lay leaders across the country to reach people who are far from God, who don't know Jesus. And I'm so looking forward to sharing our conversation, deeply inspiring, deeply personal. And I love getting some of her reflections on the Connected Generation research as well. Hey, that is all we've got for you today. We so appreciate you being part of this conversation and we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram and at ccln.ca. Lots of love and bye for now.